It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. This year, I had the honor of launching the Fox True Crime Podcast. I've been so fortunate to speak to so many incredible guests who were able to bring me inside some of the most compelling true crime stories. Today, I'll be looking back at some of the most shocking episodes that left an impact on me. First is the case that started it all, the murder trial of Alex Murdoch. The Murdoch family was known for its long-established legal dynasty in South Carolina. But in 2021, the Murdaugh name would forever be stained with blood, infamy, and mystery. In the episode, Drugs, Deceit, and Death, the Murdaugh Double Murder Trial, I had the pleasure of speaking with former U.S. attorney and former Seventh Circuit solicitor in South Carolina, Fox's very own Trey Gowdy, who brought his unique perspective on the trial that captivated the country. Trey, there are so many moving parts to this case. So many alleged crimes that have surrounded this family that have been linked, frankly, to a significant chain of mysterious deaths and serious allegations. And it's all culminating right now in this one sensational trial. How would you have prosecuted this case? Oh, gosh, Emily, I would have I would have done opening a little bit differently. Uh, Opening to me is about establishing credibility, reliability, trustworthiness with the jury. Um, I probably would have, I mean, going chronologically with both your opening and your and, and your uh, direct, your case in chief is fine. It's a conservative, n- natural way to do it. I would have probably started with Paul and Maggie's day. Um, I wouldn't have started at the murder scene. I would have said, okay, I mean, because you think about it, Emily, what scares people the most? I mean, you and I are sitting here talking today and it's it has not entered either one of our minds, that today will be the last day of our lives. It just has not entered our minds. We, we haven't even thought about that. So if you want to move the jury, I would have them wake up like Maggie and Paul Murdoch, having no idea that this was going to be the last day of their lives. And what series of decisions or what led them to be where they were when the final shot, when the fatal shots were fired. So, Look, trials are won months and months before you ever, like, open your mouth in court. Um, These prosecutors are, um, and I know some of them very, very well. I know Don Zelenka very, very well. He's been at the table. Um, He's a brilliant appellate lawyer. And I would tell him if he was on the podcast with us, he's a brilliant appellate lawyer. It's a different skill set to connect with a jury. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know how much jury trial experience the prosecutors have. Harpootlian and Jim Griffin have a ton. I don't know about the prosecutors. So 
It, it's it's really can you put the jury where you want the jury to be? And I would have wanted them to wake up the last day of Maggie and Paul Murdoch's lives, having no idea this was going to be the last day of their lives. Verdicts have hinged on juror fatigue. They have hinged on jurors not understanding confusion, being inundated with data. They have hinged on the fact that prosecution has lost the storytelling nature, to your point. It's crucial that they connect with the jury. That's all the jury has because at the end of the day, it's just like you and I talking. My takeaways are my takeaways. And the stronger the connection, the more persuasive you are. In this criticism of how the prosecution has strategized, though, their approach, what might be the reasons why they've taken this direction? What positives, if any, do you see about the route that they've taken? Well, I mean, I I think, I mean, if you want a lesson in futility and frustration, then call a jury after a verdict and ask them what they base their verdict on. Mm. You will pull your hair out because it's not what we as lawyers would have thought was most important. I mean, it's so bad, Emily. I mean, when you're starting off, you want the jury to kind of tell you what you did right, what you need to work on. And then you do that four or five times and you say, I need to go see a psychiatrist because this makes no sense at all. And you stop asking the jury. So here's what you have going for you if you're a prosecutor. You have two bodies. There's no question they're dead. Sometimes you don't have a body. So it wasn't self-defense. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't suicide. So I know it sounds simplistic, but to the jury, we have a murder. The question is now, who did it? I mean, we get all caught up in the why, but it's really who did it. The why is superfluous. You don't ever have to prove it. I mean, they want to know. You better give them some explanation, but who? So you begin to eliminate who who had access to them, who had Um, familiarity with the scene, and you begin to narrow it down, and then you have this gift, this gift which I would rather have, Emily, than a confession, a false exculpatory statement. Mm -hmm. You have someone lying about being present, and I read all these articles about, you know, what a brilliant strategic move to admit that he was lying. Well, what choice did he have? I mean, the jury knew he was lying. So then you have selective paranoia brought about by drug abuse. And it is selective because he remembers lots of things and he was truthful about lots of things. It's just the most important thing, which is where were you when your wife and son had their heads blown off that he struggles with it? I mean, I, I, I watched some of the testimony. The level of detail about which bird dog was chasing which chicken You can remember that, and you're struggling to recall whether or not you fell asleep at about the time you claim some opioid drug sellers blew your wife and son's head off. I just, juries do not think like lawyers, which is why no one would ever seat me and you on a jury, (laughs) but they wouldn't see me. They think we have two bodies. Someone did it. It's not suicide. It's not accident. It's not self-defense. Who did it? And then I'm sure they're in there thinking, okay, even if the prosecution did not, did not fully carry the burden beyond a reasonable doubt, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Do we really think, is this like OJ where we're going to go find the real killer? I mean, do they really think the real killer is, quote, out there somewhere? I don't, I don't think they do. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Throughout the year, I spoke with many law enforcement agents who shared the gritty details of how they brought down some of the most dangerous organized crime rings. I also got to speak with someone on the other side of the story, someone directly involved with one of the most formidable mob families in America, the Colombo crime family. In the episode Breaking Omerita, the son of a mob underboss tells all, I sat down with former Colombo capo regime Michael Francis, who brought me inside the inner workings of the mafia and why he ultimately chose to leave that life behind. The first time that your father was inside, you mentioned that his colleagues and, and friends in the Colombo crime family came to you and said, now is the time for you to step up. What was their support like, however, for your family, for your six siblings and your mother while your father was inside for so long? Did you guys feel taken care of and supported by the Colombo family during that time? You know, honestly, no. You know, there's a uh, a fallacy in thought there that when you know, a guy goes to prison that the family rallies around and takes care of the family. And that's just not true. You know, my dad had business on the street and that was taken care of from him. But when that business ran out, that was it. And that lasted maybe two years. And after that, we were on our own, you know, so I was kind of in a position where I had to, you know, help support the family. And so I dropped out of college And I went to see my dad. We were in the visiting room in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. 50 years. You know, he was 50 when he went in. He had 50 on top of that. I figured it was a death sentence. So, you know, and he he looked me in the eye and he said to me, you know, son, I'm innocent. You know, I've been framed on this case. We have to prove my innocence. So I said, "Okay, fine. You know, just what do I have to do? Tell me what to do. I said, we need money. You know, we need to uh, track down these witnesses. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So it was at that point that he proposed me for membership into the family, because really, you're on your own at that point, Emily. We, we had to take care of ourselves. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's a fallacy out there. A guy goes away. The family takes care of him. Not true. It could be some cases where that might happen. But generally, that's not the case. And you had been told your whole life by your father that he didn't want you part of that life. You were in medical school at that time. So what did that change feel like? And what did that adjustment feel like for you? Did you feel convicted with a sense of purpose? Or did you feel that the about face was confusing? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, look, I didn't want my dad to die in prison. I didn't want the family disrupted. So I thought, you know, the higher calling for me was to help my dad. So, you know, you have these defining moments in your life. And obviously, sitting with my dad and him proposing me into a criminal lifestyle, I mean, it was a life-changing experience for me. And my life went in a totally different direction. But originally, he didn't want that for me. You know, he said, son, get an education, stay off the street. He wanted me to be the first professional in the family. That meant something to him. And so he was, you know, he was upset initially when I made that decision. But, 
you know, I think in the long run, he was happy about it because he knew I was there to help him and really did it for him. You know, I never aspired when I was a kid, even though I knew who my dad was, I didn't want to be a mob guy. You know, that wasn't my aspiration. A lot of guys in that life, this is the life that they aspired to be in all that time. They grew up in Brooklyn. They saw the guys around them. And that's what they wanted to be. It wasn't that for me. I, I got into that life really to help my dad. Did you see it or think of it as a short-term engagement? Or did you know at the time, did you appreciate that his membership proposal meant normally, we know that with you, it, it was a different story, but that it normally and typically meant a, a an absolute lifetime commitment. Did you appreciate that at that time? No, I, I knew that once I was in, I was in for life. And, um, you know, I had a very idealistic view of the life at that point because, to me, I was going to be part of something my dad was part of. You know, I looked at it as a, a you know, a life of respect and honor. You know, when I first got into the life, they told me, Michael, anywhere you go in this world, you're going to have backup. Somebody's going to have your back. This is a brotherhood. Don't ever worry about your wife, your sister, your daughter, your mother. Nobody's ever going to hurt them. You know, it's a brotherhood. And that's very powerful, you know, to men, you know, to have that feeling. So, I mean, I was exhilarated, you know, the night I got made. Uh, to me, it was like the best thing in the world up, up until that point in my life. I had a very idealistic view of it. And I think when you add on to that, that sense, that profound sense of brotherhood and, and that sense of belonging, when you, when you add that to the landscape of feeling totally betrayed by one's government and law enforcement um, and ha having your dad be put inside for this long sentence and, and you knew he was innocent. All of those factors sort of, I think, um, likely led to this galvanizing sense on for you and for all of your colleagues there and your friends and family in the Colombo crime family. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, look, we had kind of a code on the street. We understood that the government, law enforcement, their job was to come after us. We got it, you know. Mm -hmm. And we even, you know, and yeah. I had conversations with them. I said, listen, you do your job. You know, I, I understand that. Just don't frame us. Don't frame us. You want to get us, get us the right way. And when that happened, we understood it. There was no really hard feelings. That was it. But, you know, when they overstepped the, the line, and me, I had that bitterness because I knew my dad was framed. I believed it with all my heart. I'll take it to my grave. I believe it now. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to deal with, Emily. It really is. And, you know, I, 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 did that shape my life, the early part of my life? It, it really did. And that's why I looked at, you know, Cosa Nostra, as we call it here in this country, as something great. And, yeah, I was in it for life. When I got in, I was motivated to do two things. Number one, I wanted to get my dad out of prison, which I did. After 10 years, he made parole. My dad made parole five times and got uh, violated five times, each time for association. He just couldn't stay away. Mm -hmm. And so that's total the 40 years that he did. But, uh, but I was motivated to get him out. And secondly, I wanted to make money. My dad said, in this life, you make money. It translates to power, not unlike the real world. So I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I worked hard. And I brought some new things into the family they hadn't done before. And, and went on to make a very significant amount of money. That's how, you know, you come in as a soldier, and then they made me a cop regime because I was doing well in that life. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. 
2023 marked the 20th anniversary of the infamous pizza collar bomb case. It was a case that shook the quiet town of Erie, Pennsylvania, and grabbed the nation by storm. However, the puzzling details of the case were just as jaw-dropping as the crime itself. In the episode Deadly Delivery, Inside the Pizza Collar Bomb Case, I was joined by retired FBI Special Agent Jerry Clark, who broke down the many twists and turns of FBI Major Case Number 203, The Collar Bomb. Can you describe for us what that scene looked like, what that bomb looked like, and how close those Pennsylvania state troopers were? You know, as you so you come up, he had been felony car stuff. Describe all that for us so we can picture it. Sure. So once Mr. Wells, who we knew now was the, the robber of the bank, exited the bank, what was also unique about this case was immediately there was a 911 call made by a witness who was in the bank. And so you don't normally get them that quick. And it was, he's saying, I'm watching the guy. He got into his car, he's left the bank and he's going around the side of the McDonald's. And so it was that, that quick of a response for the Pennsylvania state police who immediately dispatched troopers and a car arrived, saw a vehicle matching Brian Wells's vehicle description and basically, you know, light siren lit him up, stopped him and then asked him to exit the vehicle slowly, uh, get down on his, on his knees, and that's when they made the approach. And they approached him, handcuffed him behind his back, and then started having a conversation about what it was that he had, which he said was a bomb. And what did that look like? What did this bomb look like on him? So shortly thereafter, I arrive on scene, and one of the troopers to his credit, uh, actually took his knife and cut his shirt, Mr. Wells's shirt, because he had a shirt on that said guest jeans on the front and a port, you know, big, huge protrusion underneath it. But we didn't know exactly what it was. But when he cut his shirt on the side and peeled it back, he saw the device. And he was really the only person had seen that device before that uh, bomb had detonated, but he immediately withdrew, you know, took a, a position of cover, just like he would. Bomb squad had already been notified and was en route. And then that's when I set up my position and conversation then took place between the troopers and Mr. Wells. And can you describe what that device looked like? So we immediately knew that it was a collar that looked very much like of a large handcuff that had ratcheted around his neck and then wouldn't open back up. Uh, and then the collar held a box underneath his chin with what looked like four keyholes and it actually turned out to be four keyholes. And then a box that held the device hanging on the middle of his chest. And it just, you know, was one of those things where you're thinking, is this possible that this is real? And certainly you have to take every step to believe that it is. And that's what we did by calling the bomb squad. And at what point before it actually detonated, did you 
realize or did law enforcement realize it was real? Because to your point, so, you, so this trooper cuts his shirt, sees it, immediately backs up, everyone clears, the bomb squad is already in. But to your point, there's a, there's a certain amount of appreciation that this could probably just be posturing. So at what point was it visually seeing it then? At what point did law enforcement realize this is real? That's the interesting part, and it's a part I'll never forget because it still sticks in my mind and all these years later, right before the detonation, we hear a faint beep, 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 beep. And the troopers and I, you know, everybody realizes something's up. And Mr. Wells turns uh, his body just a little bit sideways and then boom, the bomb goes off. And it was an immediate you know, oh my God, uh, you know, surreal moment because like I said, you'd been to a number where, you know, they were posturing going on and it really wasn't a device. And so this had never happened before. It had never happened in the history of the FBI where an individual wearing a live device walks into a bank, robs it, the device detonates during the course of the robbery and results in death. It had just never happened. Nobody had ever seen it. Nobody, and to this day, thank God, we haven't seen it again, but I'll just never forget 318, that's for sure. And what did that explosion look like for the troopers surrounding and the cars and the law enforcement and the bomb squad that had been arriving? Describe that scene during those moments and after. So right after the device detonates, Mr. Wells, who was on his knees and, and sort of sitting on his legs, fell backwards onto his back and i was watching this so closely because i was so close his chest went down and it never came back up so i immediately knew it was a fatal situation um and the troopers just like any law enforcement because we're so curious we want to run up and see you know hey what just happened but that's the absolute worst thing to do with an ied because you know, you certainly uh, don't know if there's a secondary device. So we were able to gather our wits, yell secondary, secondary, and everybody retreated back to their positions, held those positions. And at that time, the bomb squad, who was just uh, suited up, then they made the approach and actually went up to Mr. Wells. How long after he had been pulled over did the device detonate? So he had been pulled over at probably uh, right around three o'clock, a little bit before. So there was probably about 18 minutes where we were having conversation and waiting for, you know, the squad to arrive because our bomb squad in Erie is sort of a, a, a Erie Police Department uh, squad. And so they had to come from the city where where we were located was actually about 15, 20 minutes south of where that was. And so we were waiting for them to arrive when, when the device detonated. And when it detonated, did it shatter windows? Was there secondary damage or injuries? Or was it um, contained enough that Mr. Wells was the only impacted individual? It was contained enough that it only impacted Mr. Wells, although you could feel the percussion and certainly things flying in the air from the device detonating were landing, you know, everywhere. And you could hear them hitting the pavement. It was 
really amazing. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, because now certainly this is a huge crime scene because everything in that area has to be collected so that we can put this device back together to see how it was made and how it operated. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Some of the most impactful interviews on this podcast come from the very people who lived the story, the survivors. For years, the Connecticut River Valley was plagued with attacks by a mysterious serial killer. 35 years later, the monster's identity has never been revealed. In the episode, the lone survivor of the River Valley Killer shares her story. I had the honor of speaking to Jane Borowski. She discussed how the violent attack impacted her life and her pregnancy, as well as her message for those who may find themselves in a similar situation. I was seven months pregnant with my daughter, and I crossed paths with evil. <laughs> no, no other easy way to say it. Uh, I went to a fair. Uh, Lived in a very, very small community um, back in the 80s. I mean, this happened in 88. So back in the 80s, there was virtually no major crime in the area. Uh, I went to a fair, uh, the county fair that they have every year. Um, met up with a few people, you know, people come up, have to do the baby rub, <laughs> the, the baby belly rub. And was probably at the fair for a few hours and uh it was super hot and muggy, crazy hot summer, probably similar to this one uh, that summer. And uh, it got dark. Vendors were starting to shut down. So I decided uh, it was time for me to leave. So uh, I was driving home. It was, you know, after 11 o'clock, stores and, and all that were closed. But I, I was thirsty, so I wanted to stop and... Um, I knew a store that was on my way home that had a soda vending machine outside. So I stopped there to grab a soda. I was parked right in front of the soda machine. It was a pay phone <laughs> uh, right next to the, the, the soda machine. And um, so I was parked right in front of there and a vehicle pulled in next to me. Uh, I didn't think anything of it really. I thought, there's a payphone. There's a soda machine. He's going to use one of the two. And um, next thing I know, he walked around the backside of my car and and asked me if the payphone worked and opened my car door and tried to grab me and take me out of the car. And uh, I, I fought right off. Uh, I immediately fought. Uh, I started kicking him. I ended up going like over my console of my car and started kicking him. And as I was kicking him, I had kicked the windshield of my car and smashed my windshield. And um, after a few moments of um, trying to fight him off me and, and not go with him, uh, he had taken a knife out of his back pocket and, and pretty much, you know, was like, maybe this will, you know, get you to come out of the car. And it did. I got out of the car, and um, he he was just, like, acting really weird, like, said that I beat up his girlfriend and and asked if I had a Massachusetts car, if I was, uh, the plates on my car were Massachusetts plates, which I lived in New Hampshire, 
And so it was really, he started being like kind of weird. I thought, what does this guy want? And I was really confused about, um, at that point, I was really confused about what he wanted. Uh, and then the next thing I know, he started walking back to his vehicle. And I was like, I went from scared to confused to pissed off <laughs> because I had a smashed windshield. And, you know, I, I said the words that, uh, these words that I'll regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, what about my windshield? And that's when he came back to me. Uh, he put the knife up against my neck. And I saw a vehicle driving by and I said, well, the only way I'm going to get out of this situation is to run to the road and scream, try to get that vehicle's attention. Um, and this was a, a main road. This was Route 10 in Swansea, New Hampshire. It is a main road. So I just, um, I dashed to the road and and started screaming. And before I knew it, he had tackled me down like a football player and he was on top of me and he proceeded to stab me. And uh, a lot of my, my stab wounds were defensive wounds. I was trying to protect my baby. Um, and uh, so he ultimately stabbed me 27 times. I had uh, two collapsed lungs. He sliced my juggler. I, he cut the tendon in my thumb, uh, the tendon in my knee. He lacerated my liver. So yeah, I had, I had quite a few wounds. Um, and then he, he stopped and uh, walked through his vehicle and left. And I got to my vehicle to, to, to go and try and get help. And I ended up driving down the road. Uh, a friend of mine lived about two miles down the road and uh, got my car and I drove down the road. And before I knew it, I was behind this guy. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, God. All right, he's going to see where I turn in. Uh, but he went straight. I turned into my friend's driveway and got help. I collapsed on his steps and, and ultimately got help. Going back to those first moments, this story is so horrific and so hard to listen to. I can't imagine what it was like to experience it while seven months pregnant. Yeah. At any point, did he register that there was a baby involved? Did he ever observe or say something about that? Absolutely. Um, when he first got in the car and tried to grab me out of the car, I did, I screamed and I, I did say, you know, please don't hurt me. I'm seven months pregnant. I'm pregnant. Um, so he knew, he knew. I was very visually pregnant also. So he absolutely knew I was pregnant. Did he, yeah. did he acknowledge that ever with no. a comment? No. The only thing he ever really said was um, about taking the knife out and get me out of the car that he wanted me to go with him. Uh, does the payphone work? And and uh, me beating up his girlfriend and me having a um, Massachusetts license plate. Uh, so those are really after all that. There was absolutely no conversation with him. Um, he never never said anything. And you know he knew I was pregnant, but he he didn't care. 
More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This year, I spoke to the families of people who are no longer with us, and many are still fighting to find answers and to bring justice for their loved ones. For cold case victims and investigations, amplification is essential for answers. In the episode, The Disappearance of Mara Murray, Her Sisters Fight for Answers, Julie Murray discussed the impact her sister's disappearance had on her family and why she's committed to keeping Mara's story alive all these years later. My little sister Mara, she was a 21-year-old nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And on February 9th, she submitted her nursing school homework assignment very early in the morning. I think it was around 3 a.m. It was looking up maternity terms. So she emailed that homework off and then she did some internet searches. She was looking for directions to both Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, Then she got some sleep. Then mid-morning the next day, February 9th, she continued to do some internet searches, and she um, contacted a condo owner um, up in New Hampshire where my family had stayed before. And she was inquiring about um, booking the condo, Uh, but she didn't make that reservation. So the day progresses a little bit, and she is playing phone tag with her boyfriend, Bill, who was my West Point classmate and a lieutenant in the Army stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Now, she played phone tag with him that day. She emailed him, but they never spoke. Um, And then she did a number of things um, mid-afternoon to include she returned some clothes that she had borrowed from a classmate in her nursing program. And then she went to um, an ATM. She withdrew $280, leaving just shy of $20 in her bank account. Then she went to a liquor store. She purchased approximately $40 worth of liquor. And she also returned 79 cans to redeem $3.95. After that, she gets in her 1996 black Saturn sedan that was only running on three cylinders. It was in rough shape. And she heads north. And she doesn't tell anyone. Destination unknown. No reservations. She checks her voicemail at 4.37 p.m. that day. And that was the last cell phone activity ever. Um, Fast forward a couple hours, about 7.30 p.m. that night, a woman up in a small rural town called Haverhill, New Hampshire, notices a vehicle off the side of the road. And she looks out, sees a black sedan um, in the eastbound lane facing the wrong direction. So she calls 911 Um, reports vehicle off the road. She also notes that she sees a man smoking a cigarette, which she'll later recant. Um, A short while later, a bus driver, her neighbor Butch Atwood, drives by. He was returning home from dropping students off at a ski trip. He stops and speaks to the driver, which we have to assume was Mara, Um, offers assistance. The driver declines and says no, she had already called AAA roadside assistance. But he knew that was not true because there's no cell phone service in that remote area. And he went home, 
uh, not far up the road, and he placed the second 911 call at 7.42 p.m. Uh, at 7.46, the first responding officer arrives on scene. So this is 16 minutes after the first 911 call, three minutes after the second. When the officer arrives, the black Saturn is locked, and Mara is nowhere to be found. There was a crack in the windshield, both airbags deployed, and he noticed some red liquid on the roof and the driver's side door. Um, and that was the last time Mara was ever seen. And did we ever get a report or confirmation what that red liquid was? We assume it was wine, but I haven't seen any documentation that um, 100% says that it was. But she did have wine in her car at the time. She had a boxed wine, which was behind her driver's seat. It was purchased previously uh, that Saturday, so it had already been open. Um, but we have to assume that it was wine. So after that, when was the first time that you were alerted or notified that your sister went missing? And what were the events that transpired at that point? So that was Monday night, February 9th, when those 911 calls took place. My family was not notified until late the next day, even though the car was registered to my dad. So when they ran the plate, it came back to my dad. Um, so we didn't find out that anything was wrong until the next Tuesday night. Yeah. So during that time in that pocket of not communicating with her, was that normal or, or typical, I should say? Um, or were you used to texting or emailing with her every single day? And so you were already alarmed when you hadn't heard from her for those two days? Well, for me, it wasn't abnormal not to hear from her for a few days. I spoke to her on Saturday um, when she was car shopping um, with my dad. But this was 2004. So we're talking before text messaging and, and that whole thing. So we norm Mara and I normally communicated through instant messenger. Um, and I was out of state, I was stationed in the army, I was down at Fort Bragg at the time. So it wasn't um, something that concerned me that I hadn't heard from her in two days. When the contents of her car were inventoried, was her wallet and personal belongings still in the car? Was there anything missing that you know she would have kept with her? Well, her phone was missing, her wallet was missing, the keys were missing, all of her cards, cash, all of that was missing, and it's never been found. Does that indicate to you that she expected to return to the car? I believe she expected to return to the car. Um, I will note that she also brought her school books with her. She had textbooks with her in the car, indicating to me that she had planned to keep up with her schoolwork. And once your family was notified, what did you go through at that point? How did investigators work with you? And how were those next few months? What did they look like for you? Well, all hell broke loose when we got the call on Tuesday because, you know, Morrow had just started classes at UMass, so she there was no reason for her to be in New Hampshire. And like I said before, 
she didn't tell anyone she was going to New Hampshire. We didn't have any reason why she would be up there. So when we we learned that her car was up in New Hampshire on a Monday night in the middle of February, that just came as a total shock to us. And we were just in complete panic mode. So my dad was in Connecticut at the time. He contacted um, the police that Tuesday and they weren't very forthcoming with the information. They said, hey, this thing happens all the time where motorists leave their vehicles and they return the next day. And my dad was adamant that something was not right. And so was everybody else in my family. My other um, sister, Kathleen, and my brothers, Freddie and Curtis, we, were, we knew something was not right. Um, so my dad jumped in his car late on Tuesday, really early on Wednesday, and headed up to New Hampshire, about a five-hour drive. And when he got to New Hampshire that Wednesday, his expectation was that he was going to go join the search, because obviously he thought that the, the authorities would be out there searching, but they were not. So my dad essentially was the search, and he had to demand that they search for Mara, um, and then that's when the first search happened that Wednesday, um, early afternoon and New Hampshire fish and game went, came out, they did line searches. They had a bloodhound out there and they found nothing. You can listen to all these episodes and more on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe and follow along because we'll be bringing you so many more gripping stories in 2024. I'm Emily Campagno, and thank you so much for listening this year to the Fox True Crime Podcast. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.